Have you heard about the new show on Netflix called Tidying Up with Marie Kondo? How many of you have heard about it? I confess the last time I mentioned it, I had not watched it, but I've watched it now. <laughs> she's a popular Japanese author and she's an expert on tidying up. And so she helps people achieve joy by creating order out of chaos. And she's actually really a sweet young woman. She's got an amazing smile and a very kind presence. And、um, her persona in itself just radiates joy. It's fun to watch her go into different families' lives and、um, people who are just inundated with clutter and make order out of clutter. And I, I'm not sure I agree with her philosophy, however, that、um, my stuff is supposed to bring me joy. And I, I will say, I definitely don't feel compelled to thank each thing that I use before I discard it. I think there's some parts of her philosophy that don't jive with mine.、Um, but do you, I realized she is very much、um, reflecting an attribute of God's character in her desire to help people create order and to be attentive to details. And she,、um, and even to be. Mindful of how we care for possessions. Interestingly, that is exactly what we find God doing with the Israelites as we embark on this book of Numbers. God is a God of details, He is a God of order, He is meticulous in the ways that He prescribes His people to get ready for entrance into the promised land. He gives them very specific Things to do and ways to think. And I think we're going to be inspired in our lives this morning as we dig into Numbers chapters 1 through 12. We're going to look at the first 10 chapters and we're going to see how God organizes and directs his people very specifically. And then in 11 and 12, we're going to see how God helps Moses overcome some of the burdens of leadership. But what I think we're going to learn today is that God is meticulous about order and detail. Therefore, a complaining spirit reveals a lack of faith. Ah, that's where it's going to hurt. If we believe the one, if we believe that God is meticulous about order and detail, that He has got this and He's got a plan, then when we have a complaining spirit, it reveals a lack of faith. So we're going to see that as we look at the Israelites in the book of Numbers. So, to begin in the book of Numbers, God begins by commanding a census to be taken to establish Israel's army. So, 13 months have passed since they exited out of Egypt. They've been in the wilderness during this time, and finally they are ready to march on to the land of Canaan. Woohoo! The promised land. This is what they've been waiting for. This is the land that God was giving them that was going to be their own land. Now, their journey to this land is going to take them through enemy territory. And so, when, and even when they get to the land of Canaan, it's going to be occupied by some hostile people. And so, they needed to be organized and trained and ready to deal with confrontation and conflict. So, in Numbers 1, God commands Moses, along with Aaron and the other tribal leaders, to take a census of all the men who could serve in the army. So, the The reason that this book is called Numbers is because it's about counting. It's about counting the number of people and preparing this army that's going to then usher them into the promised land. Now, this wasn't an army of volunteers. Every、um, able bodied male, 20 years or older, was expected to serve in the army. And so there were 603,550 men. 
which actually leads us to believe there were between two and three million people if we were to count women and children in that mix. Now, you would think this is crazy. How could they count each person? But it actually wasn't that difficult because the people were already organized by tribes and by family groups. And if you remember, just back in Exodus 18, a little bit earlier, Moses had um, established rulers over groups of 10, 100, and 1,000. So it actually, there already was a substructure in place that made counting not as difficult as you might imagine. Then as we get to the end of Numbers 1, we see that God tells him, now you need to count the Levites because they're going to be commissioned to care for the tabernacle. So the Levites, they are not going to be part of the army. They're going to be assistants to the priests, and they're the ones who are going to have to carry all the pieces of the tabernacle as they're getting ready to enter into the promised land. Now Moses, there's three, actually Levi had three sons. There was Gershon, Koath, and Merari, and Moses, Aaron and Moses were both descendants of Koath, one of the tribes of the Levites. Now, only the sons of Aaron and were allowed to actually, Aaron and his sons were allowed to minister at the altar. So only the three of them could go into the most holy place, the altar behind the curtain. But the rest of the Levites are going to have a special responsibility as they're getting ready to move. They're going to dismantle the tabernacle. They're going to carry it. They're going to erect it. And as the camp goes from place to place, the rest of the Levites are going to be the ones who move the actual tabernacle. Um, So when the camp was set up, which you saw this in your lesson, the Levites were the ones that were centered most closely to the tabernacle. They were the ones who could protect it, and they were also the ones who were able to see the Shekinah glory, the cloud, and when the cloud would get ready to move, then they were the ones who knew to get ready. They're going to have to dismantle the tabernacle and get ready to move it. The tabernacle was the most important structure for this entire community of people, And so it was a great honor for these Levites to be called out as the ones who were going to be caring and and protecting and moving the tabernacle. God was in the process of establishing a priestly theocracy, which is a nation that's led by God himself. And so each of his instructions were very particular to that. As we got into Numbers chapter 2, we know that um, God actually gives them specific information about how they're to form their dwellings around the tabernacle. And hopefully you guys got the piece uh, that was messed up in our lesson. I sent you the replacement. So sorry about that. When it was time for the Israelites to move, the cloud above the tabernacle would signal that it was time to go. And you might think that it was how would they mobilize two to three million people? That seems like an impossible feat. We were talking in our leaders meeting that our metropolitan community in Portland is a little over a million people. And you're talking two to three million people. So imagine how many people that was. But there was a very efficient plan in place. Uh, I don't know if you can, I don't know how well you can see that. But um, Moses, Aaron, and the priests camped immediately around the tabernacle. So Moses and Aaron are here, and then the Merarites, Gershonites, and Koathites, these are all Levi tribes within Levi. So they're all around the tabernacle. And then you can see from your map that you also did in your lesson, the other tribes wrapped around in a very orderly way. God said specifically, this is exactly how you are to camp around the tabernacle. 
Their physical formation was a meaningful illustration that God needed to be central in their lives. So he portioned them in such a way that they would all be focusing on his presence in the midst of them. He was to be their sole focal point. And he's the same today. He's meant to be our sole focal point as well. Did you notice how the tribes that were the largest, the largest number of soldiers, were actually located at the entrance? So Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun are the ones that are here at, at facing the entrance of the tabernacle. This was for protection. So the, the strongest number of men were going to be able to guard anyone from coming and trying to evade the tabernacle. There were 186,400 men. And then you notice that when it was time to move out, when the camp was ready to move, there was a specific way in which that was to take place. And God told them exactly how that was to happen. He said when the camp moved, first the Ark of the Covenant went in front with the high priest following just right behind. And then the largest group of soldiers would go next, followed by the Levites who were carrying the tabernacle. So he kind of put the Levites with the tabernacles in between a really large group of soldiers and then the holy things and then the second largest group of soldiers would follow up at the rear. So he was so deliberate in exactly how he told them that they were to march and what order they were to be in. Everything was orchestrated and planned. And then each tribe would carry this brightly colored banner. Can you imagine what this would look like? Each tribe had a brightly colored banner, and then each family group had a brightly colored banner. And so they would move across the desert. They would be following the presence of God's evidence in this cloud that was leading them, holding their banners high, signifying that they are God's people. You know, there was a song about lift up your banners that I think I've sung for years. I never really realized the imagery that this came from. It was from these tribes and these families um, traversing across the wilderness, going to the promised land. And did you know that this is what God has designed for his church, this universal pilgrimage of people from every tribe and every nation following the Lord and his leading through the journey of life. That's a picture of what our lives are to be in following God. Well, then as we got into Numbers 3, we see that God appointed Levites to serve him as the new firstborn in Israel. So Aaron was the first high priest, and then his two remaining sons were the chief priests. And they were anointed the servants who were given leadership over all of the other Levites who would serve in their priestly duties in caring for the tabernacle. So one of Aaron's sons, Eleazar, he was the one who was the chief over the Levites who worked in the sanctuary, and he would eventually replace his father as the next high priest when Aaron passed away. And then Ithamar, he was in charge of the Gershonites and the Merarites. And then God told them that when they get to the promised land, this, this Levite tribe, they're actually not going to get their own land. Everybody else, every other tribe, is going to be assigned a dwelling place. But for the Levites, they're not going to get to have their own land. Instead, they're going to live off the gifts and tithes of the people. And so God was looking upon the Levites now as his firstborn sons. You remember back in the Exodus that God had spared the firstborn of, of Israel during the Passover from Egypt. And in return, he had declared that all the firstborn of Israel, including the firstborn animals, were to be consecrated to him, were to be dedicated to him. 
And now he's declaring that all the tribes of the Levites will be his firstborn in exchange for all the firstborn of Israel that he previously declared to be consecrated to him. He's saying now, actually, all the Levites are going to be concentrated, consecrated to me. Um, so they would not only be God's gift to the priests, who by assisting them in the work of the tabernacle, but they would also now substitute for the redeemed firstborn of Israel. So the Levites are now going to be the ones who minister in the place of the other firstborn of Israel. So God is so interesting. I just want you to see how detailed God is, how particular he is. Because he tells Moses, he says, Now Moses, I want you to count all the Levites. He is such a God of order, and he's so particular. Not one person falls under his radar. Every single person now is going to be counted in the Levite tribe. And the count turns out to be 22,000 Levites. But the count of the firstborn from Israel was 22,273. So how is he going to exchange 22,000 when there previously were 22,273? And you think, well, what does it matter? Well, it matters to God. And so those 273 more Israelites than there were Levi's, he said, he said, I'm going to redeem them by paying an additional um, five shekels for each one of these men's lives. And that money then would go to Aaron for use in the tabernacle. So when he was redeeming one group for another, every soul counted. Every person had to be redeemed. And this just illustrates the truth that every life, every person's life must be redeemed by Christ. He not only paid the price for each one of us physically on the cross with, with his dying in our place as a substitute, but he also paid for the penalty of our sins with his own blood. And every person counts. Every person's life must be redeemed. Then there was a second count of the Levites, and this was to determine how many men aged 30 to 50 would actually serve in the sanctuary. So do you see why it's called numbers? Counting, 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 counting. <laughs> And every single person counts. Then in chapter 4, we see how God details the work of caring, and caring for and transporting the tabernacle, and he assigns tasks now to particular individuals. So after the Levite laborers were identified, God then portioned out to them specific work. So the Gershonites, they were tasked with transporting the coverings, and the hangings and the framework of the tabernacle, and they were given two carts with four oxen to do that. The Kohathites were the ones who could carry the furniture from the tabernacle. Now, before they could get the furniture, only Aaron and his two sons could go into the Holy of Holies and dismantle everything and bring it out. And then, once it was out, the Kohathites were the ones who could, could carry everything, could carry the furniture. Um, they, the furniture was covered and carried on the shoulders of the Koath men. And while everybody else had wagons to carry all of the other parts of the tabernacle, when it came to particularly carrying the Ark of the Covenant, which um, Moses, Moses and Aaron would put, or Aaron and his sons would put poles through it, so it was specifically carried on their shoulders, um, the Koathites weren't able to carry any of those things on carts. It had to be carried on their bodies. Kind of an illustration, actually, of how how when you're appointed to the Lord's work, there are, you're a burden bearer. Part of serving God is there's a burden that you bear. And we see this as these men were tasked with actually carrying this, the Ark of the Covenant on their shoulders, walking across the desert. Can you imagine what a heavy burden that was for them? 
And then the Merarites, they had the heaviest task. They had to carry all the boards from the tabernacle, all the heavy things, the bars and the pillars. But they had four carts and eight oxen to do so, so they had a little bit of help. The truth that I just want us to capture from this first survey over numbers is just that God cares about order and details. He cares about order and details. He is not haphazard in any of this planning and preparation. He is amazingly organized and detail-oriented. And we know that, right? Look at creation. Look at the intricacy of the world that we live in. Watch any nature show, and you're just blown away time and time again about how specifically God has put our world together. Or the intricacies of the human body, the miracle of the human body. You know, we know that what God creates is so ordered and detailed and specific and meticulous, and every part works together in such a way that it's mind-blowing, isn't it? And we see that here in how he's caring for his people and moving them out. He's so ordered and so detailed. How much do you care about organization? How much do you pay attention to the details? In what area of your life do you need to improve? You know, this is a struggle for me sometimes. My life gets busy and I kind of think, well, I'll get to that later. That pile, that messy drawer, that overstuffed closet that stacked-up garage, I think, ah, that's not as important as these other things I'm doing. But you know what? I'm feeling convicted. Yeah, it is important because it reflects the character of God when I pay attention to order and to detail. Think about how you order your time. Think about how you order your days. Think about how you order your work or your ministry or your kids' lives. Do you need more time organizationally just to get up earlier and to have time with the Lord in the Word? How many of you are cramming your lessons on Monday night instead of like getting up a little bit every day and just working on it and having a little bit of time or ordering your time so you have time to pray and talk to the Lord? Just getting dressed in the day earlier so that whatever comes your way, you're ready to go. I I actually um, was able to mop my floors and do some housework over the weekend and got a call last night from somebody who said, hey, I need a place to stay Wednesday night. Me and my friend coming in for a meeting. Can we just stay at your house? And you know what? I was only able to say yes without hesitation because for some reason I'd actually ordered my living space. And so it's not going to be embarrassing uh, when they come. But I wonder how many opportunities we miss because we don't pay enough attention to those types of things, and then we're not ready when the Lord tells us, go, here's an opportunity for you. So ask the Lord to impart these qualities to you and show you where you might become more organized in your life, because when you're organized, you're ready for the next thing that God will bring into your life. 1 Corinthians 14.40 says, but all things should be done decently and in order. 1 Corinthians 14.33 says, For God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. And part of putting your life in order is also making your focal point the Lord. You know, what is your focal point? Or who is your focal point? If he's the Lord, if the Lord is your focal point, a lot of stuff starts to naturally fall into order in your life. So think about where, ask God to show you what details in your life need more attention so that he can become the central focus of your day. Well, as we go through Numbers 5 through 9, there's more details about the Israelites consecrating themselves and the camp and the tabernacle. We've looked at that a lot over the last few weeks. 
But then in number 10, we finally see that they're ready to set out. They're finally ready to leave Sinai and go into the promised land. And so they've been camped here in Sinai. Um, They've been camped in this location. I don't think I'm ready to show you the map quite yet. But they've been camped here for 11 months and 20 days. That's a long, long time. And when the cloud's going to lift... They're going to need some form of communication to tell all the people, okay, it's time to go. Because, you know, two to three million people, how are you going to get that kind of call to like, okay, it's go. They're not watching the cloud. They're not going to know. And so God tells Moses, like, I need you to have some trumpets ready. And you're going to blow these trumpets when it's time to move out. And so that would be the signal that it was time to pack up and get going. The people are ready. Everything about them is ready. They've been consecrated. They've been trained. They've been prepared. They've got the army counted out. They've got the marching orders. They've got their their camping locations around the tabernacle. Everything is ready now for them to move into the promised land, which God says is the land of milk and honey and abundance. What an exciting moment. Numbers 10, verse 11 says, In the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day of the month, The cloud lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony, and the people of Israel set out by stages from the wilderness of Sinai. And the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. They set out for the first time at the command of the Lord by Moses. So now you can see the map that I can put up there. Um, So they've, they've been here for 11 months and 20 days, and now they're going up here to the wilderness of Paran. They're going to camp there next. Remember, um, this was a marching army, and they were prepared to meet enemies along the way. And God had assigned every person a place and a task. And then we find out along the way that Moses meets his brother-in-law. So his brother-in-law, his name is Hobab. It seems that Jethro, his father-in-law, has passed away. And so Hobab is now leading the family that he, he, he once was living with for 40 years, remember, in the wilderness, married Jethro's daughter. At some point, she has disappeared, so we assume that she's passed away as well. And so Moses wants to encourage his brother-in-law, come with me, come with us to the promised land. We're going. You can be part of God's great blessing. But Hobab says that he's preferring to stay. He actually says, I don't think I want to go. I want to stay here. And yet we find out a few years ahead that Hobab's descendants show up in the promised land. So we know, we think that Moses must have been very persuasive because it seems that he does come after all and we find them living there. The point, though, is that the Israelites were not an exclusive club, that Moses invited others to come along and partake of the blessings that God was going to lavish upon his people. And we know, as we go through Scripture, that there are many who come, who join up, who become a part of this group with the Israelites that move into the Promised Land. It's, again, a picture of the church to me. It's a picture of the church being on a pilgrimage toward heaven and God's people inviting others along the way to join. Come, hear the good news. Come, worship Christ with me. Come, know Jesus. And we invite others in as we are in a pilgrimage to God's presence in in eternal life. The point is that our lives are meant to be centered on God and led by his directives. Our lives are meant to be centered on God and led on, by his directives. 
That's how we were created. We were created in the image of God. God made us so that we would have a, a natural part of ourselves that is, is meant to be centered on him, focused on him, and led by his directives. And God is orderly, and he is dependable, and he is faithful. He is purposeful, and he is strategic. He is organized, and he is empowering. And God moves in our lives today, like he moved with the Israelites. He moves today, and when he moves, we have got to respond. Yes, Lord, I'm ready. I'll follow you. I'm, I'm ready to go where you call me. When have you ever experienced the Lord moving you? You know, it's, it's not always a physical move. It's not always like get up from Lake Oswego and move out to Nebraska. <laughs> sometimes it is that. But sometimes it's just a, it's a spiritual move. It's God moving you, prompting you to deeper relationship with him, to, um, to commitment at a deeper level of obedience, of faithfulness, of trust. There can be many ways in which God moves in us and calls us forward one of my great joys of the river is that this is a movement of women who are seeking to grow spiritually, to move forward in, in your spiritual life and faith and trust and obedience in Christ. It happens as we study his word in community and we pray and we walk together through life. It's a movement, but there are other kinds of movement. There's a vocational movement, maybe a job change or maybe a school change or maybe a change in your family dynamics or a relationship change. There are all kinds of ways in which God moves us. About seven years ago, God moved me out of a ministry that I dearly loved, that I had been with for 11 years. And actually, it was kicking and screaming. I didn't want to be moved. But he moved me, and then he just showed me, like, your assignment is finished here, and I have a new thing for you to do. And I'm so thankful. But sometimes we don't respond to those movements with, yay. We respond by digging our heels down. And like, we don't like change. It's hard for us. But just like the cloud that led the Israelites by day and the fire that led them by night, God still today directs our paths and guides us by his spirit and by his word. I love Isaiah 58:11, which says, And the Lord will guide you continually. And satisfy your desires in scorched places, and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, whose waters do not fail. God is always moving in us and guiding us and directing us through his spirit and through his word. Do you have an awareness of his guiding presence in your life? Where is the Lord directing you today? Will you follow him wherever he leads you and trust him for the outcome? There is no growth without challenge, no challenge without change. Comfort leads to complacency, and complacency is the enemy of character and spiritual growth. So if we want to grow in character and spiritual growth, we can't be complacent. We can't hold on to comfort. We have to embrace growth and challenge. And that's what we're seeing God doing with his people in this season of their lives as well. Well, now we're going to see how um, God helps Moses overcome some amazing burdens of leadership. In chapter 11, verse 1, it says, And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outlying parts of the camp. Complaining is characteristic of this group of people. 
as soon as they had crossed the Red Sea and they'd had their big worship party on the other side and they were celebrating, three days later, it only took three days for them to start complaining because they didn't have water to drink. Well, now, three days after leaving Sinai, they're complaining about not having a good variety of food to eat. We know it takes faith to follow in God's footsteps, and we know they're still young in their faith, so we feel compassionate. But while we can sympathize with them, we know we, know we also like to travel in comfort, right? We don't like to be uncomfortable when we're traveling. We know that they don't like to be uncomfortable, but their complaining is actually indicative of a national rebelliousness against God. They've got hard hearts. And the reality is that God actually hears complaining. He heard their complaining. He actually hears our complaining. Complaining angers God. I just thought about, imagine that you're taking your kids to Disneyland. You want to bless them with the best trip of their lives. They've never been to Disneyland before. Every trip you've ever taken them on has been amazing. And can you imagine taking your kids to Disneyland and having all they do is complain, 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 complain. Wouldn't you be mad? Like, I am blessing you. I've never forsaken you. I've never abandoned you. I've never taken you on a bad vacation. And to have your kids complaining, I think you'd feel the same way, right? Well, God, he's angry at their complaining. He expects us to trust him based on his past experiences with us. And every experience we've had of the past for each one of us has been care and provision. None of us, we are alive today, have ever not received God's tender care and provision. So God is angry because he has demonstrated over and over again that he was their great provider. He had met all of their needs, all of them. They had manna to eat. They had warmth at night. They had shade by day. They had his presence. They had his teaching. They had his promises. They had his specific plans with all the details laid out before them. They had been rescued from slavery. They had been cared for. They had been deemed his people. And now they're finally going to the land that he has promised. He's promised them the land of milk and honey. And they're finally going there and they're complaining again. And it tells us that this, there was some fire activity that came down outside of the camp. And we know that fire in scripture always either signifies a blessing or a judgment. So possibly this fire coming down outside the camp, this is... You saw the way that the Israelites were camped around the tabernacle. So that we know outside the camp is where all the people camped who were not part of a tribe or a family group within Israel. So it's likely that the outsiders were people who had joined in, who had kind of riding on the coattails of Israel's blessing, the extra people who had followed along, which they were invited to do. But it seems they're called the rabble. And so it seems that there are people who are instigating this complaining. In verse 2, it says, The people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So, again, Moses is an intercessor. He's between the people and God, and he's crying out on their behalf, and God is hearing him, and the fire dies down. This is the same way that Jesus is the intercessor between us and God, and that he's the one who prays on our behalf and who stands in the midst so that we can come into the presence of holy God, accepted and loved. I remember Jesus even being on the cross, interceding for those who were betraying him when he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus is the intercessor. Now, Israel is going to sin against God in this way many, many times. Moses is going to intercede for them many, many times. Remember back in Exodus when God was going to judge them after the golden calf incident, Moses said, take my life instead of theirs. He was willing to lay his own life down to intercede for them. So he is foreshadowing Christ for us. Now, 
these rabble-rousers, they were people who had followed the Israelites. They're also called the riffraff. And some of them may have been people who just got out of Israel, Egypt, excuse me, at the same time that Israel did. Others might have attached themselves along the way. Um, but regardless, their complaining is dangerous because it's really contagious. Don't you know how contagious complaining is in your own life? And so the Israelites, they begin wailing over this food that they missed when they were living in Egypt. And you're like, oh, have you forgotten about the slavery? Have you forgotten about the bondage and the oppression and the beatings? Have you forgotten about making bricks out of hay and this terrible life that they had? And of course, they had to have good food in Egypt because they had to be strong enough to do all the physical work they had to do. But they're forgetting about what their suffering was like in Egypt and how God has rescued them. And so instead of looking forward at this land that God is leading them to and the abundance that he's promised to them, they're looking back and saying, oh, well, we liked all the foods we had in Egypt. It was so much better back then. Do you know that it's not unusual for people to rebel with food? What is it about food that stirs up rebellion? Adam and Eve in the garden, God said, here's the whole garden. You can eat of anything. And they're like, we want that one fruit on that one tree that we, you said we can't have. It's so common that food becomes an instrument of rebellion. And even though, um, oh, I think this is actually why we were trained by our moms to pray at dinner time, to express thanksgiving for our food. I think because food can be a place of rebellion, it can be a, a place in our own personal rebellion in how we mistreat food with our own bodies. But we pray at dinner time to express thanksgiving to God for our food so as to tame down any sense of ungratefulness, which is this root of rebellion, is ingratitude. Now, the manna that God had provided them was really all the nourishment they needed. It was miraculous. They didn't need anything more for their bodies, and yet they craved more. They were bored, which we can understand. They wanted more flavor. They wanted more diversity. They wanted more excitement. And ultimately, what they're doing is they're rebelling against God, and they're saying that they want a substitute. They don't want this bread from heaven that God is providing. They want the feasts of Egypt instead. And so we, too, can become this way. We can crave substitutes. We can, we can want things from the world to substitute for the, the word of God, the things that God feeds us on, the things that God nourishes us with. We can say, you know, that's boring. That's not good enough. That's too, you know, old-fashioned. And we can think something out here is much more exciting and flavorful and desirable. We want something more dazzling, more diverse, something that satisfies our flesh in a different way. And so we begin to sometimes then yearn for the thrill that our old selves enjoyed in sinfulness. And we forget about all the pain and bondage that was associated with that old life. Well, Moses, he heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. You know, few things will discourage God's servants more than complaining and criticism. I can tell you that as a pastor. I can tell you that on behalf of the team of pastors. There's nothing more discouraging than people complaining or being critical. And when Moses hears the wailing, he becomes really troubled. And this is actually the first of two occasions when we see Moses despair. He has an attitude of despair. And he turns to God and he vents his frustrations to God for the ingratitude of the people that he's been leading. This is almost comical because we get it so much how he feels. But it's 
it's pathetic. Moses says to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burdens of all this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give to that you swore to give to their fathers? Oh, don't we know just how he feels? Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like this burden that you're carrying is just too big? I have. I remember when um, I sent Adam off to college at the University of Oregon. Okay, sending a child off to college, as you know, is heartbreaking. You're firstborn, it's heartbreaking. But sending a child off to college who's disabled, who actually you're the primary caregiver for, and you're sending them off to live 100 miles away in a big university where they're going to have to have their, you know, he's going to have to have his own apartment that's wheelchair accessible, so not near campus on the dorms, but like a mile away. And you're going to, I had to hire in caregivers people that I'd never met before, to come in, and I'm entrusting these strangers with my son 24 hours a day who literally can't get out of bed unless someone's there to help him. And I'm, I'm hiring strangers off the street that I hope are going to be trustworthy with him and then getting him set to go to school. And then we had all of this trouble, caregivers who were not good caregivers or caregivers who quit or him being on campus and a wheel falling off his chair and rolling down the sidewalk and him stranded there until somebody came over and rescued him. And there were so many difficulties. And I kept having to get in my car and go down to Eugene all the time and step in for the caregiver who wasn't there and then come back and teach my BSF class and care for my, the rest of my family. And it was so stressful. And then in the midst of that, my husband got a cancer diagnosis. And I was like, I'm out. Like, okay, that was hard, but now I'm out. This is too hard, Lord. I can't do this anymore. There's a difference, though, between complaining and lamenting, pleading before the Lord for help. And the complaining that was going on here, people were complaining to Moses, and Moses was lamenting to God. The difference is that the complaints that Moses presents to God about the people is that Moses was legitimate in his anguish, and God provides him with support. God understands that Moses is carrying such a heavy burden and he, he comes alongside of him to help him. Moses has two problems. One, he has too many people to minister to. And two, he has to provide meat. He wants, these people want meat. How is he going to do that? So the first thing that God does by solving the first problem is that there's too many people. He can't do it. Is that he raises up 70 elders to help him. Now, Earlier, God had raised up um, some leadership. These were judicial leaders, if you remember. They were to meet with the people and, and handle some of their disputes. And so he had a group of people who were handling the, the legal stuff, the social stuff. But he needed people to handle their spiritual issues. And so God says he's going to raise up 70 people who are going to be able to minister to these people. Because God knows that the heart of every problem is a problem of the heart. And these people have some heart problems, and they need some spiritual help. They need some leadership, some character building. And so it's so interesting, too, that Moses asks God for help, and God brings human beings alongside him to help. 
He's like, well, I'm going to help you by providing all of these people. And isn't that the way life is? That God brings someone right alongside just when you need them to help you in your time of need. And then it was so wonderful the way that God then puts his spirit on these men. It says so interestingly that he takes some of his spirit out of Moses and puts it on these men who begin to prophesy. That was beautiful. And in chapter 11, verse 25, it says, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it, in, put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied. But they did not continue doing it. So it was a temporary provision for help. Um, then the second problem is how is he going to provide meat for all of these complaining people? They want meat. The Jews were not able to slaughter their herds. For one, it would not have fed two to three million people. But also, this is their livelihood. This is how they're going to go into the promised land and earn a living. So they couldn't eat all of their herds. That would have been, that would have been self-destructive. So the Lord told Moses um, to tell the people that because they have wailed for meat, they're going to have meat until it comes out of their nostrils, and they loathe it. So if they thought manna was boring, wait till they start eating quail morning, noon, and night. I mean, think if you had to eat chicken breast morning, noon, and night for 30 days. Blah. Um, but he says the real source of their complaining is found in verse 11, chapter 11, verse 20, which says, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you, that is why they are eating quail. I just have to pause and think, oh my goodness, am I, am I complaining about something in my life? that I am then actually expressing ingratitude towards God about? God has, has God provided something for you that you're being ungrateful? Are you bored with something he's given you? Or do you want more, more excitement, more diversity, more flavor, more money, more travel, more entertainment? Do you have like the mores going through your mind? You want more, more, more? The warning is that you and I must be careful about we, what we crave because God very well may give it to us. When God really wants to judge his people, and we see this all through scripture, he gives them what they want. Oh, what a warning. Now, it was incredulous to Moses. He just couldn't fathom how God was going to provide so much meat for millions of people. And so God says to him in verse 23, is the Lord's hand shortened? You shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. God can do the impossible, and you and I must remember that when we face impossible circumstances. Is the Lord's hand shortened? Can he not reach down and do whatever he wants? And then he sends this wind, and he blows the quail right into their camp, three feet above the ground, and it says for two days and a night, the people got to go out and gather all this quail. They had enough meat for a month, but God was angry, and he sent a plague, and before some people could swallow, so not everybody, he knows the heart of each person. Before some people could swallow, God made them choke. And we wonder, was this the rabble outside of the camp? We don't know. But Moses then calls this place the graves of lust as a monument to people who said, not thy will be done, but my will be done. And what we can learn is that a complaining spirit reveals a lack of faith. A complaining spirit reveals a lack of faith. Grumbling is actually a sin against God because it comes from a place of unbelief. The Lord had warned Israel that the way they treated the daily manna was going to be a test of obedience to his word. It was actually back in Exodus 16.4. 
the Lord had said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them to see whether they will follow my instructions. So by rejecting the manna, they are actually rejecting the Lord, and they are re- they're doing so with a rebellious attitude that is inviting judgment from God. Now, there is a difference between presenting a legitimate need to God in prayer and complaining against God for not providing a want. There's a difference. When, when we complain against God, we're actually expressing a lack of faith in God's ability to take care of us. We're challenging his sovereignty, or we're thinking that he's wrong to give us the things that we don't like, or that he's failed to meet our needs adequately. And that's why it's a spirit of, it's a, an attitude of the heart, because God knows the heart. God knows when we're lamenting and praying and beseeching and begging for a legitimate need, and when we're shaking our fists, the fists of our heart in his face and saying, you aren't taking care of me. You aren't providing for me. What have you been complaining about lately? Maybe you don't think it's complaining. Maybe you think, I just have the gift of criticism. (laughs) I'm just a negative person. I'm like Eeyore. Might want to double check that. (laughs) Maybe you've developed a habit of complaining. If so, ask God for forgiveness and just pay attention to the words that come out of your mouth, which originate from your thoughts and your heart. Now, just to kind of sum this all up, Let's just confess, this is a really tough time for Moses. Moses is in a tough place. Our lesson concludes with his brother and sister criticizing him. They criticize him, at least on the, on the outside, for, for taking a wife, for taking a foreigner as a wife. That very well may have been um, a legitimate criticism. But God knows the heart, and he says, this is coming from a place of jealousy. And so he judged them for being jealous about Moses. God knows the intention of the heart. He was swift to punish their sins because they're influential people. Miriam and Aaron are big influencers. And so if they took on this spirit against Moses, it was going to spread like wildfire. Can you imagine the chaos? One or two people who are on the inside of a church who get critical about church leadership, it spreads like wildfire. It creates division, can tear a a people apart. And so God honors his faithful servant Moses and upholds his own honor in the process. But leadership wasn't easy for Moses. And yet, throughout, we see that God has this master plan. He is highly strategic. He's meticulously detailed. His people simply need to exercise faith by trusting in him. He's just like, trust me. I've got this covered. And they weren't to complain because complaining is the antithesis of trust. And trust is the essence of faith. So if they're complaining, they're not trusting and they're not exercising faith. And remember, God had promised his people. He's in a covenant relationship with his people that says, if you'll obey me, trust, I will bless you. And they're not obeying when they're complaining. So my challenge for all of us is like, where are we tempted to whine? Where are we tempted to complain? Where are we tempted to fear? How does God's orderly nature and strategic plan help you exercise patience in the places where you're waiting upon the Lord? Just to know, like, I don't know how this is all going to work out, but I'm not going to complain. I'm not going to shake my fist in God's face. I'm going to be patient. I'm just going to trust because I know his character. His character is that he's orderly, meticulous, detailed. He's got a plan. Where do you need to be more intentional with your time and more organized with your stuff? And more focused on the Lord. 
and more careful to follow his directives for your particular life. Because he is guiding you. He's leading you. Would you stand and let me pray for help? We need help with this. So let me pray. Father, we, we want to say we praise you, first of all. We've seen some attributes of you this morning that we are so grateful to know. We are thankful that you are a God of order, that you are a God of creativity and design and detail and intricacy. We praise you every day for what we see of that in creation or in the healing of our own human bodies. Lord, you are astounding. You are brilliant beyond measure. You have created an amazing plan for your people. And so thank you, even as we see the details of the Old Testament so perfectly fulfilled in Christ, who but you could have thought of such a thing? And so we praise you and thank you. But Lord, also we want to come before you and say, we are so sorry We're so sorry for how quick we are to complain, how easily we whine, how faithless we are when we're waiting, when we don't know what the future holds. Lord, please forgive us. Please forgive us for being so much like the Israelites. Help us, Lord, to trust you. Help us to create more space and order and um, thoughtfulness about our own lives, centering around you and you alone. We need your help, Lord, but we're so grateful that you're teaching us so much through your word, by just looking back at your relationship with your people, Israel. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness and your grace towards us and your forgiveness in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.